hymn that you just sang, written by Martin Luther uh, 500 years ago. The church has been singing, Mighty Fortress is Our God, Ein Feistberg in Germany, uh, in German, for uh, half a millennium. Mighty Fortress is Our God. I remember uh, preaching in the in the great church in Wittenberg, uh, in the uh, in the uh, the pulpit that is there, and that pulpit is elevated right above the grave of uh, Martin Luther. And uh, the day that I preached there, they cranked up this massive pipe organ, and we all sang that same hymn uh, right there where it was given its birth. So it's a it's a wonderful legacy for the church. We. We stand in the history of great truth and profound worship. What a blessing it is. And I've been trying to talk to you a little bit this week about uh, the essence of our worship, and that is a true understanding of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, against the backdrop of so much vain worship that abounds in the churches of our day, everywhere so-called worship of God occurs while people actually have inadequate and incomplete and sometimes corrupted ideas about God. They endeavor to worship Him while dishonoring Him at the same time. And uh, in many cases, the very opposite of worship is expressed. And and there are a lot of ways to corrupt worship. Um, You go back to the book of Amos, and Amos says, stop your songs. Stop your songs, your hearts aren't right. One way to corrupt worship is, is to say the right things about God, but from, a, from an evil heart, a heart holding on to sin. That's a way to corrupt worship. But worship is also corrupted when we have wrong thoughts about God, incomplete thoughts about God, aberrant thoughts about God. To understand worship, uh, you might want to go back to the original English word, worth-ship, worth-ship. Worship is a contraction of worth-ship, and all that worship means is to ascribe to God the praise that He is due, to say you are worthy, to give Him praise and adoration and love and devotion because He is worthy of it. Anything less than that is a kind of sacrilege. Anything that perverts that is a sacrilege. So the the foundation of our lives as Christians is to see ourselves as worshipers. And we must worship in spirit and in truth. The whole purpose of God in redeeming people is to bring together a redeemed humanity who will worship Him eternally in the glory of heaven. We are saved to become true worshipers. That will occupy our eternity. True worshipers must know God. That is axiomatic. That is a self-evident truth. If you're going to worship Him, you have to worship Him genuinely and truly. That subscribes us then to a lifetime of the study of the Word of God. Because the only way we know God is from the Scripture. So if you say you want to be a true worshiper, and indeed you should say that because that's why you were saved, then you have just assigned yourself a lifetime of learning 
all that you can about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of which is revealed in one place, and that's in the Holy Book. And so we are people of the Book. This is what informs our worship. I often um, have been asked through the years um, how such long sermons like I preach, sometimes an hour, very often an hour, um, fits in with worship. Um, aren't you spending too much time on instruction and not a, enough time on worship? To which I've always replied, the highest expression of worship in the church is hearing from God. Because this is what informs our praise. The most important thing that ever happens in worship is revelation, the truth about God. So we have been trying to take a look at this, at least in some sense. Uh, Monday we talked about the Father and some of the, some of the disturbing things that are believed about God um, in the prosperity gospel movement. And then on Wednesday we talked about the Holy Spirit and some of the very disturbing and sacrilegious things that are said about the Holy Spirit in the uh, prosperity movement, the charismatic movement. We saw how the prosperity message corrupts the truth about God by developing an elevated anthropology and a diminished theology proper. We saw how the, the charismatic movement and the seeker movement and the culturally marketed and personality-driven pragmatic pseudo-church has ascribed to the Holy Spirit things that He doesn't do and has in many cases just eliminated Him because their strategies are effective enough that really they don't need the Holy Spirit, so he's left out. The Holy Spirit is, is overdone in a negative way in the charismatic movement and virtually ignored in the pragmatic movement. We must, if we're going to be true worshipers, worship the Father in a way that he deserves and the Spirit as well. So we concluded on Wednesday, and I want to pick it up there, we concluded on Wednesday by showing the essential, irreplaceable, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the church. All spiritual life, all spiritual growth, personal and corporate or collective, is the work of the Holy Spirit. All spiritual life, personal and corporate, all spiritual growth, personal and corporate, is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4.3, the Apostle Paul said... Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You have begun in the Spirit because regeneration is the work of the Spirit. Justification is the work of the Spirit. Adoption is the work of the Spirit. Conversion is the work of the Spirit. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit. Why have you set the Spirit aside and attempted to complete your spiritual development through the flesh. That's foolish. And we kind of wrapped it up with um, the statement that the, the model or the example of the Spirit-controlled life is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. From a theological viewpoint, one of the most fascinating studies in all of Scripture is how the Holy Spirit worked in the life of a Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the best way to answer that, and I want you to think through it with me a little bit today. The best way to answer that is this, that the Holy Spirit eternally was Christ's perfect companion, as was the Father. That's the nature of the Trinity, one in three, three in one. 
But in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit was Christ's inseparable companion from, I think I said last time, womb to tomb to throne. The Holy Spirit was his inseparable companion. When he emptied himself of divine prerogatives and became a man, set aside uh, some of his eternal rights, he did not set aside relationships. He was still one with the Father and he was still one with the Spirit. And the nature of his incarnation was that he set aside the independent use of his attributes and yielded himself up completely to the Holy Spirit. He voluntarily turned himself over to the Holy Spirit to do the will of the Father through him. He became a vessel completely under the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the will of of God. That is how we are to understand the incarnation. Let me say it another way. The Lord Jesus did only the Father's will in the Spirit's power. That is the essence of His incarnation. He did only the Father's will in the Spirit's power. Just following His life, you see the role the, the Spirit played. According to Luke 1, He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. As a child, in Luke 2, the grace of God was upon him by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. He ministered, according to Luke 4, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In his death, he literally died and rose again through the power of the eternal Spirit. And his post-resurrection appearances in giving the Great Commission was even done by the Holy Spirit. All those things are stated in the Scriptures. The life of our Lord then was a life lived completely dominated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the perfect illustration of a Spirit-empowered man. Under the complete control of the Spirit of God, he lived a perfectly sinless, God-honoring life, demonstrating what a holy human looks like and how a holy human acts. In his death, he validated God's salvation plan, made it possible. In his life, he demonstrated God's salvation plan. He made it visible. In his death, he made it possible. In his life, he made it visible. This is what the saved man in ultimate perfection looks like. This is what interests the Holy Spirit. Not knocking people over. Not doing bizarre things. Not barking like a dog not giving private messages in people's feelings, not making people rich, not even making them well, necessarily. His work is spiritual. His work in us is exactly what it was in the Lord. It was to conform Him to the perfections of the divine nature, which of course He did because He was a perfect man. But it was still the work of the Spirit in him. It is an insult to lower the ministry of the Holy Spirit to some kind of circus event or chaos or confusion 
sort of be the source of satanic things that are somehow attributed to God. Let me take you to a text that just kind of points this out. 2 Corinthians 3.18, you want to look at that with me for a minute. 2 Corinthians 3.18, really one of those definitive portions of Scripture. As um, the Apostle Paul comes off the illustration of Moses coming down out of the mountain and having seen the glory of God and having his face veiled, Paul says in verse 18, we all with unveiled face, there's no veil. The, 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 the Old Testament, the Old Covenant uh, had, ve- had a veil. There were things that were not discernible, were not visible, were not yet revealed. So there were things hidden. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We'll stop there for a moment. This is our current state as believers. The veil is off. The veil of ignorance, the veil of darkness, uh, the, the, the mysteries of the New Testament, that veil is removed. We see clearly in the glass the glory of the Lord. And it's manifest in the incarnated Christ. So he's talking about looking at the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face, nothing hindering our view. We have a full revelation of the Lord because of the New Testament. And it says that as we look at the glory of the Lord in this clear glass unveiled, we are being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next. In other words, this is what sanctification is. As you gaze at the glory of the Lord, you will literally be being changed into that image, moving from one level of glory to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And who is doing this? End of verse 18. Just as from the Lord the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit's work to conform us to Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is the goal The Holy Spirit is the agent, and the Scripture is the means as we gaze at the glory of the Lord revealed in Scripture. Sanctification, then, is only by means of the Holy Spirit taking what we see of the glory of Christ, revealing it to us, and then conforming us to that same glory. I mean, just go back in redemptive history. Man is created in God's image to reflect God's glory. Back in Genesis 1, man falls. In Genesis 3, so man created to reflect and express the glory of God is fallen. He is corrupted. He is evil. The purpose for his existence is lost. In fact, man is so corrupt that by the sixth chapter of Genesis, God drowns the entire world. The entire world. God literally obliterated the distorted image of His creation of man. So God had to make a plan. He saved eight people and had to make a plan to restore the terribly distorted image by sovereignly, supernaturally, and graciously transforming 
sinners so that they could become again capable of reflecting His glory. So how did He do that? When He redeems us, He makes us, uh, 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. We escape corruption, the Bible says. That's what salvation's purpose is, is to deliver us from corruption and give us the power to become Christ-like. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is God's plan. The Father initiated it. The Son validated it at the cross. And the Spirit demonstrates it. Spirit, as we saw last time, is the author of Scripture, which is the instrumental means of the transformation. He is the creator of life, and therefore He is the only one who can regenerate. He is the agent of resurrection in the miracle of glorification at the end of the purposes of salvation. So whether it's the beginning, revelation, whether it's the work of regeneration in us, or the work of sanctification, or the work of glorification in the end, it's all the Holy Spirit's work. And in the end, when we get to heaven, we will be like Christ, 1 John 3, 2, because we'll see Him as He is. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just so sad to me to see so much nonsense attributed to the Holy Spirit. This is the true work of the Holy Spirit. Revelation in Scripture, illumination of that Scripture, leading the non-believer to repentance, awakening his dead heart by regeneration, going through the process of sanctification, conforming the believer to the image of Christ, and one day raising the believer to glorification. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When we read so many times in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, be holy for I am holy, over and over and over again, how does this happen? How does this happen? The answer comes in Leviticus. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I want you to be holy, and I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. There was only one person who ever lived who was self-sanctified, and that was Jesus. That's why in John 17 he said, I sanctify myself. We can't say that. He said, I sanctify myself. For us, as for him, it still was the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the regenerator, the sanctifier, and the glorifier of the people of God. So, so very important that we give the Holy Spirit the worship and the honor that is due to Him. So much more could be said about that. I love to read Romans 8. And I commend that to you. That is the Holy Spirit's chapter. I won't go through all of it, but I, I can't resist at least a look at a portion of Romans chapter 8. You can look at it with me. When we, we look, we could start it, say, well, you can just keep going back to the beginning, but um, let's just go to verse 14 for a minute, Romans 8. We are all being led by the Spirit of God. If you are being led by the Spirit of God, you're sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit's work is to give testimony of our true salvation. 
verse 23 says that we ourselves have the first fruits, the down payment of future glory, which is the Holy Spirit. It's like God's engagement ring given to us, guaranteeing our future wedding. We have been given the Spirit, but we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We live in hope. We, we wait for the glorification that the Spirit will bring. But in the meantime, we have the, the, the Spirit as the down payment on that. Verse 26 says, The Spirit helps our weakness. We don't even know how to pray. So the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit is our constant companion. The Spirit in us incessantly prays for us. Go down to verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's salvation. It, it's, as uh, Zach was saying, it's not just to get you out of hell. Salvation is to conform you to Christ. That's the point. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And to that end, He predestined us, verse 30, called us, justified us, and He will also glorify us. This again, from initial grace to final glory, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, back to what I said at the beginning, the person of Christ is the model of the Spirit-filled man. Now, in the little bit of time we have left, I want to turn the page and let's talk about the Lord Himself. Let's talk about the Son of God. We've talked about the Father and the Spirit. And I know you know the most about Him, and so I'm going to assume your, your knowledge is, is deep and rich and true. But the person of Jesus Christ is constantly under attack. I don't know if you've been watching this, but recently on television there's a series being done where they're trying to expose Scientology. Have you heard about that? Scientology... Uh, started by uh, a science fiction writer who, who was basically demon-possessed by the name of L. Ron Hubbard. It's a pseudo-religion. I just think it might be interesting for you to get their perspective on, on Jesus Christ. L. Ron Hubbard said this, Jesus Christ never existed as a person, but rather is an electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of someone between incarnations around 600 B.C. And that is just wacky. What? Jesus Christ is not a person. He's an electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of someone between incarnations about 600 B.C. So he believes in reincarnation. And he believes there are true powers in the universe, and there are the power of darkness. This is why I say he's demon-possessed, obviously. And he spawned a whole operation, false religion, Scientology. He says... This electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of this person between incarnations in 600 B.C., we call R.G. R.G. 
and he went on to say, the depositing or implanting of RG occurred while this person was between bodies and watching a madman or something. This was some kind of a spiritually biological implant and this RG that we call Jesus had all the characteristics of a pedophile. Really. If you don't think that's from hell, Jesus, a pedophile? I can't imagine anything more blasphemous or bizarre, far from the truth. And yet that organization has flourished. That's bizarre, but any deviation from the truth about Jesus Christ at all in any way is equally blasphemous. If someone preaches another Christ, let him be damned. The Bible says. So how, how are we to, to see Christ? Let me just show you one passage, just a few minutes. Luke 20. And there are so many places we could go, obviously. But let me just show you Luke 20. I find this fascinating. Down to verse 41. This is a Passion Week, the final week of our Lord's life before His crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, it's most likely Wednesday of that week. Thursday was the upper room, and Friday, of course, the crucifixion. Sunday, he rose from the dead. He's preaching the kingdom. He's confronting the religious leaders. And um, there's, there are discussions, parallel passages in Mark 12 and in Matthew. And there's a discussion about Messiah. He's, he's confronting them about Messiah. And... Uh, According to Luke 20, 41, he says to these Jewish leaders, how is it that they say the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Our Lord put them on the horns of many dilemmas. Many dilemmas. And here is one of the most potent of all. They were sure that the Messiah would be a man. No more. They were also sure, and rightly so, that the Messiah would be in the line of David. They were also sure that the Messiah, who would come in the line of David and therefore have a royal right, would be a man who would defeat all of Israel's enemies and bring all kingdom promises to fulfillment. That was their messianic view. That everything that had been prophesied to or promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, everything that had been promised to David in the Davidic covenant, even everything promised in the new covenant to the prophets, 
would all be brought to fulfillment in the arrival of this son of David, this powerful man who would be the ultimate anointed king, subdue all Israel's enemies, bring all the promises of the kingdom. That's Messiah. But they, they never thought he would be more than a man. So our Lord takes them to a passage as it's mentioned in verse 42 from Psalm 110. The discussion prior to this, according to Matthew 22, is what do you think about the Christ? He asks them. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? That's kind of what launched this. And they're responding, oh, he's David's son. He's David's son. And so he says, how is it that they say Christ is David's son based on what it says in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it says, David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord is pointing to this psalm and saying, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Messiah is not just David's son. He is David's Lord. He is David's Lord. How can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? How is that possible? David's son and David's Lord? That would mean preexistence. He would have to have been around when David lived. How can he be after David and before David? How can he be born and yet eternal? This simple statement, simple look at Psalm 110.1 shows us the nature of Christ. He is David's Son, the royal line, a man. He is David's Lord, God, the eternal Son. This is the glory of Christ. David's Son and David's Lord. It's a little bit like when Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, before Abraham was, I am. Amazing. David's Lord, Adonai, or Kurios in the New Testament, deity. We know He is David's Lord because He manifests omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, mutability. He received worship. He knew the future. I guess you might kind of pull it together and say this. If God became a man, we would expect His human life to be sinless. If holy God became a man, we would expect His human life to be sinless. Jesus was. The uniform testimony of the New Testament is the sinlessness, the blamelessness, the faultlessness of Jesus. No one could ever find any fault in Him. If God, holy God, sovereign God, eternal God, were to become a man, we would expect Him to be perfectly righteous. Not just sinless, but righteous. Not just 
without sin, but the very essence of pure, holy virtue, the purest personal character. Not just the absence of sin, but the presence of perfect righteousness. And he was. If God were a man, we would expect his words to be the wisest, truest, purest ever spoken. And Jesus were. His words were basically so profound that they said of him, never a man spoke like this man. If God were to become a man, sovereign God, we would expect him to exert the most profound power over creation. He did. He did. Still storms, created food, organs, healed diseases. If God, holy God, sovereign God, were to become a man, we would expect Him to have a profound power over the souls of men. He did. He gave them life, forgiveness. If holy God were to become a man, we would expect Him to exert complete power over fallen angels. He did. Sent them into pigs. Commanded them at will. If God became a man, we would expect the demonstration of supernatural power over nature, over people, over demons, over everything. And that's what He did. And then this, if God became a man, we would expect Him to manifest the attributes of God. All of His attributes, including love and mercy and grace and compassion. If God became a man, we would expect Him to have power over life and death. If God were to become a man, we would expect Him to have complete authority over sin. Well, that's Jesus. He did become a man. When we think about Christ, we have to think about Him in those grand terms. And one of the things that you have to be very careful of is not pulling Jesus down to a kind of a, uh, such a human level that we forget the divine nature. I think there's a lot of frivolous reference to Jesus that doesn't uphold His glory. There's a, there's a closing to this that's most fascinating to me. And it's really where we want to close this little series this week. So, Jesus is David's son and Lord the same time. While the people were listening, look at verse 45. He said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes. Those are the theologians of Israel. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. 
so fascinating to me that Jesus didn't condemn the Gentile idol worshipers. He condemned the Jews who claimed to worship him and represent him. He condemned them for their religious hypocrisy. They rejected him. They rejected him. They rejected him. And in rejecting him, they rejected the Holy Spirit who worked in him. You remember? They said what he does, he does by the power of Satan. And he said, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and you will not be forgiven for that in this age or the age to come. Matthew 12. And in rejecting him, they rejected the Spirit. And in rejecting the Spirit, they had rejected the Father. The Father said at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, in whom I am well pleased. John says, if you honor the Son, you honor the Father. If you honor the Father, you honor the Son. So in rejecting the Son, they had rejected the Spirit who was in the Son, doing all the works, and they rejected the Father who sent the Son and whose will the Son was doing. It was a full-scale Trinitarian rejection. And so, Jesus says, beware of these hypocritical false religionists. All their worship is corrupt because they do not know me. And then this powerful, powerful little incident, verse 1, forget the chapter division. He looked up, he's sitting near the temple in one of the courtyards. He looks up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. They had these, um, I think there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles around the wall of this particular court, outer court, and people would drop their money in these receptacles as a way of, of uh, giving to the system, the Jewish system of religion. And uh, he was watching the rich putting their gifts in, and they would do it with fanfare, as we read about in, in uh, Matthew 6, calling attention to themselves. And then he sees this poor widow putting in two small copper coins. That's, I mean, that, that's the least, that's like dropping in two pennies. It's just the least of all currency. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard somebody talk about that verse, but normally they would say, this is sacrificial giving. This is sacrificial giving. It is that, but it's not a model for what you should do. The Lord never asked a widow who has two pennies left to give them to the temple and go home and die. That's, that's absurd. That isn't, that is, you, nobody does that. You wouldn't say to your church, no, you need to take everything you have, empty your bank account, your pockets, everything you've got, bring it all down here and go home and die. That's not giving, that's stupid. God gives you, God gives you an abundance, doesn't ask for that. This is not a model of giving. This woman isn't a Christian. This is instruction. This is a victim of a corrupt religious system who is so desperate in this legalistic system, who is so desperate 
that she literally gives all she has to purchase what she's missing, go home and die. This is how corrupt that system was. And all you have to do is go back to verse 47 and see where Jesus said, they devour widows' houses. They divest widows of their money. Corrupt views of God take advantage of people. It goes on all the time in all false religions, whether it's Scientology or the prosperity gospel or any corruption of religion. This woman is, is giving more than all these rich people who are so proud of their giving. Percentage-wise, she's giving everything she has. This system is so rotten, it is so corrupt, that it literally devours the last two pennies in the hand of a widow. And so he says about this system, look at verse 6. As for these things which you're looking at, you're watching these people putting money into this corrupt system. As for these things, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Whoa. Our Lord says this entire temple with all its gold that's been being built for 50 years under Herod's leadership, this massive symbol of Jewish religion is coming down to the ground. 70 A.D., it's exactly what happened. When he saw what it was doing to widows, the corruption of a false religious system, he pronounced judgment on that system. The massacre of 70 A.D. was just amazing. Read Josephus. It said the Romans threw over 100,000 bodies over the wall when they came in to slaughter women and children and men. There are various counts of the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were slaughtered by the Romans. And then the Romans proceeded to go through the land of Israel and sack 985 towns and villages and massacre the people. That was an act of divine judgment. Divine judgment. Jesus even said to them in that same week, this desolation that's going to come on you is going to last until you change your view of me. And the desolation of Israel goes on even today among those who reject Christ. True worship is what God requires. False worship is what He judges. And so we sort of end where we begin. Remember in Exodus? If you take my name in vain, you will not go what? Unpunished. If you take my name in vain, you will not go unpunished. This is the highest and the holiest and the most sacred thing in our lives is the true worship of our triune God. Lord, again, such a privilege for us to be together this morning. Thank you for these precious young people here. Thank you for what you're doing in their lives. I thank you for the 
the encouragement, blessing they are to me and to all of us here. We thank you for raising up this school. Thank you for those who have sacrificed for 90 years to bring us to this hour. But mostly, we give you the glory and the praise for all that is right and good. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. And Lord, we want to be those true worshipers who, who honor you, who ascribe to you what you are worthy of. Elevate our thoughts about you. Enrich them from your word. And may our worship please you because we come with clean hands and a pure heart. So thankful for this privilege. We have been given access to you and called to be true worshipers by your Son. And it's in his name that we pray.